On this week's 51%, we stop by a panel commemorating the 174th anniversary of the Seneca Falls Convention and take a look at the status of women's rights. We also speak with Amanda Hunter, executive director of the Barbara Lee Family Foundation, about how things are shaping up for women running in this year's midterm elections. Women are not wallflowers waiting around for their turn. Women want to solve problems and they want to get in there. Coming up on 51%. I was standing around like one of those girls I had seen in a movie. The whole world was a movie back then. I had my sunglasses on, I wanted to be seen without seeing Shiloh leader. I wasn't really in it. I didn't really get it. You're listening to 51%, a WAMC production dedicated to women's issues and experiences. Thanks for joining us. I'm Jesse King. On July 20th, the National Women's Hall of Fame celebrated an interesting anniversary, the 174th anniversary of the Seneca Falls Convention, the first major convention for women's rights in the U.S. The Hall of Fame is located near the Wesleyan Chapel in Seneca Falls, New York, where the convention took place in 1848. It's where Elizabeth Cady Stanton and other activists signed the Declaration of Sentiments, kicking off the women's suffrage movement and fueling the larger struggle for equality and women's rights. To mark the anniversary, the Hall of Fame hosted a panel with State Inspector Lucy Lang discussing New York women then and now, analyzing the fight for women's rights in New York, what that fight looks like today, and where we're going. We're bringing you a slice of that panel today, and just a heads up that they did discuss sensitive topics like domestic violence, but we may as well start at the beginning, before even the American Revolution. Michelle Shenandoah is the founder of the nonprofit Rematriation and a traditional member of the Oneida Nation Wolf Clan of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy. She says the Haudenosaunee Confederacy is one of the oldest democracies in the world. Observing the freedoms enjoyed by its people, and particularly its women, had a considerable impact on the early European colonists, who were more familiar with the monarchy and patriarchal society. Ultimately, Shenandoah says the Haudenosaunee were a major influence on the U.S. Constitution and later the women's rights movement. Women are central. We are the seat of authority in our governments. And why is that? Because women tend to be the caretakers and they listen to the voices of all of their children. And that's really the role also of our clan mothers. And our clan mothers are really the ones who oversee the political, spiritual welfare of the people. But they also are the guide and confidant for our chiefs. And people tend to think because we have chiefs, oh, the chiefs are in charge. And they're not. They actually really defer to and listen to the leadership of our women. And that is one critical element that the founding fathers left out. And I do believe on purpose because that's not the system that they came from. That's not the history or understanding that they knew that women could have such power within community, within government, and within the daily lives because women were property. I think that that's really important to recognize because there's still a lot to be learned. In addition to the nearby indigenous influence, the region around Seneca Falls became a hotbed for a number of movements in the 19th century. Tamar Carroll, the Department of History Chair at the Rochester Institute of Technology, says the construction of the Erie Canal made it easier for people to move there. With the burst in population, the region saw religious revivalism, Quakerism, the abolitionist movement, industrialization, and the temperance movement. All of these things, according to Carroll, fed into the push for women's suffrage and women's rights. Carol is careful to note, however, that the women's rights movement wasn't perfect. While it consistently gained from the support of black women and women of color, the movement often faltered and divided when it came to race. 
1869, there was a, a big split in the movement. And this was in the aftermath of the Civil War. Most women's rights activists had been abolitionists. They believed in ending slavery, but the division came down over the 14th and 15th Amendment to the US Constitution and whether everyone should get the right to vote, women and black men at the same time, or whether black men should be enfranchised first. And so Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton opposed the 15th Amendment unless it also gave women the right to vote. And they formed the New York-based National Women's Suffrage Association. In contrast, Lucy Stone, Henry Blackwell, and Julia Ward Howe believed that all men should get the right to vote first and then women. And they created the Boston-based American Women's Suffrage Association. Um, in 1870, the 15th Amendment was ratified, uh, and it granted voting rights to all men without regard to race and color. Of course, um, under Jim Crow, black men were subsequently disenfranchised. In the aftermath of the 15th Amendment passing, though, Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony were very frustrated, and they accepted funds from a notorious racist, George Francis Train, who had opposed enfranchising black men in order to publish their newspaper, The Revolution. So that created um, a lot of backlash. And I think um, the movement really didn't unify again until the next generation of, of activists. New York would ultimately give women the right to vote in 1917, three years before women's suffrage was granted nationwide through the 19th Amendment. Obviously, there's a wealth of women's history between then and now, but how are things looking today? To some, the current status and future of women's rights might look a little murky. The Supreme Court just rolled back nearly 50 years of constitutional protection for abortions in the U.S., with many fearing that protections for other rights could follow. Violence against women is pervasive on a global scale. According to the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence, roughly one in four women in the U.S. have reported some form of physical violence, sexual violence, or stalking from their partner. Carol and Shenandoah noted that historically such issues pose even a bigger threat to women of color and members of the LGBTQ community. Even the COVID-19 pandemic has had its impact. Kelly Owens, executive director of the New York State Office for the Prevention of Domestic Violence, says her office ultimately saw an increase in reports of domestic violence during the coronavirus pandemic. While New York law still largely protects abortion rights, she worries that the overturning of Roe v. Wade could further aggravate violence and control of women in states where abortion is being restricted. Pregnancy, whether to have or have not a pregnancy, has always been um, a matter of control. 85% of women who are in domestic violence situations report reproductive coercion. And we often don't think of that as a society, right? We don't paint that picture of what this looks like for somebody. Um, and I think it's important that when we start to talk about these things, we talk about those types of realities that are going to happen, that women are going to die, and women are going to be forced into motherhood when they aren't ready. Um, children are going to be forced into motherhood when they're not ready. It's, it's a frightening time. I just think about my daughter, who is 23, now has less rights than I ever had. Owen says the way organizations are learning to address domestic violence also feels a bit like turning back the clock. Rather than solely banking on the major systems in place to help survivors, such as police responses and women's shelters, she sees more organizations taking a woman-to-woman -woman approach, tailored to each survivor's specific situation and needs. 
Judge Kathy Davidson, dean of the New York State Judicial Institute, has worked in family court for nearly 20 years, and she hopes to see a somewhat similar trend in the court system. She says a big part of her mission now is education, training new judges to fully understand things like racism in the U.S., the history of indigenous peoples, and even the signs of domestic violence, so that they better understand the people standing before them in court. So what the court has to do is really address the issue from the perspective of who is that person sitting in front of me and what are the issues that's brought them here before the court, not just the issue of, the, of what's being charged. On a personal level, supervising start, uh, judge, I started a girls court because I saw that there was predominantly girls of color coming into the juvenile delinquency cases. And we realized that all of this is because of the fact of racism, gender inequality, and it expanded even into the LGBTQ community. So I bring that up because I also was faced with the fact, well, Judge, why would you start a girls' court? What about the boys? And it's always what about the boys. But what we know through uh, research is that if you help and embrace the girls, it will have the effect to improve with the boys because of a patriarchal society that we've grown up in. So the courts are looking at it, and, and I'll, I'll close on this section with one of the first things I did as the dean of New York State Judicial Institute, we also teach new judges. So we brought in survivors of domestic violence so the judges can begin to see this is what this person looks like. This is this, their story, including girls. So it's a sensitivity to understand because otherwise, you'll have a judge who I've listened to on tape saying, well, why did you stay? Why didn't you leave? You don't look so bad today. Well, who would think in, the, in this now someone would say that? but they do. So that's some of the ways that we're beginning to get them early and begin to have that educational process as to humanize who that person is. Overall, all of the panelists said education, specifically the history being taught to our children, is critical for the future of women's rights. Shenandoah notes it's important that history is told from all angles, and she hopes to see more indigenous voices come to the forefront. You know, this leads to bigger issues. It's not just about abortion, but it's about the roles that women play and serve. And so within our governments, it's the women who even, you know, make the choice whether to go to war or not. And so I just encourage women of today to begin to look at really what is the inherent power that, that you have. The second thing, and as I say, I'm speaking from the world I come from, now you see how important it is for you to know who are these judges either running for office or being appointed. You know, go in their campaigning or being appointed, considered, and ask them, well, what have you done lately for people of color? Don't just show up and you know the campaign world. Become involved and get to know who is this person running and ask them these questions. What I would say to New Yorkers uh, is be proud of our history, but own our history as well. To the judge's point, I can't think there's anything better than we should be thinking about right now is who we put in judgeships, who we put in district attorney's positions, who we put in those positions that ultimately look like they're making the decisions for women. So it's not always about the president. It's sometimes about those people on your school board that you ought to be thinking about. If you or someone you love is suffering from domestic violence, the National Domestic Violence Hotline is available at 1-800-799-SAFE. Again, that's 1-800-799-SAFE. You can also text START to 88788. If you'd like to hear the full New York Women Then and Now discussion, you can find a link at wamcpodcast.org.
On the subject of politics, our next guest has been keeping an eye on this fall's midterm elections. Amanda Hunter is the executive director of the Barbara Lee Family Foundation, a nonpartisan, nonprofit foundation studying women in political office, particularly positions like the governorship. Currently, the U.S. is matching its record for nine female governors across the country, but eight of them are running for a re-election this November. Hunter's job is to watch how it plays out and determine what it means for those hoping to run in the future on both sides of the aisle. There are so many different layers to the impact of women in the governor's mansion. And when Barbara started this work in the late 90s, she always said, who do you see above the fold on a newspaper, since that's still what people were reading at the time? And she said, it's the mayor of your city or town or the governor of your state. And in 1998, only 16 women had ever served as governor. And now we're up to a whopping 45. But that's compared to more than 2,300 men who have served as governor. And I say that because one of the important impacts of having a woman governor is that it breaks down what we call the imagination barrier for voters. When we asked voters in a recent study to picture a governor, a majority still picture a man. So in a state that's never had a woman serve as governor, it can just be difficult for voters to think about a woman successfully doing the job because they've never seen it. And so when you have a woman elected or a woman takes the governor's office, it breaks down that barrier in voters' minds. And it also helps voters reimagine what leadership roles look like and opens the door for women at all levels in politics. In your research, have you noticed a different way that some of these women lead compared to their predecessors? Absolutely. One thing that we've noticed since 2017 is that women are showing up unapologetically as themselves, finally. When Barbara started this work in the late 90s, women were really trying to fit into an outdated template that was designed for men. And they were showing up in boxy suits, posing for pictures in front of mahogany desks, and not really talking so much about their lived experience. One of the most exciting developments that we've seen since 2017 is women bringing their lived experience very openly to the job. And when you think about the decisions that any governor has had to make in the past few years, with the multiple crises facing our country, having women that are mothers, that are caring for elderly relatives, that are having to make decisions for their family, are going, those women are going to lead differently in a pandemic and think about different populations that are being affected. And we saw that not just at the governor level, but also at the mayoral level. It was really governors and mayors that were taking center stage at the beginning of the pandemic. And London Breed, the mayor of San Francisco, for example, talked about having spent time in public housing growing up. And one of the first steps that she took during the pandemic was ensuring safety protocols for public housing in San Francisco. And that's just one of so many examples of the way that women are bringing their lived experience to the job in executive leadership. What do you think prompted that change then around 2017? I think that it was a groundswell in 2017 after the first Women's March and during the 
Time's Up movement and around this massive truth telling that we saw in the media in our country, a lot of women looked around and said, I'm tired of waiting my turn. I'm tired of trying to pretend to be something that I'm not. And I know that I can solve these problems. And that's when we first saw in 2017, a record number of women run for and become elected to local and municipal office. And since then, women have broken records at different levels every year running for office. And we saw in 2018 during the midterms, women talk about deeply personal issues on the campaign trail. Senator Tammy Baldwin did a commercial where she talked very openly and emotionally about her mother's struggles with addiction. And in our local Boston mayoral race last year, we had four women who were all contending for the top spot, which was also a record. And during those debates, candidates talked about family members struggling with mental health and struggling with housing insecurity, dealing with teenage pregnancy, all issues that when Barbara started this work, probably likely male political consultants would have urged women to keep secret, women are bringing out to the forefront. And not to mention all of the brave women who have shared their experience with sexual assault since 2017 in leadership too. Looking forward to the midterms then, what are some of the top races that you guys are focusing on? There is real potential to change the male domination of governor's offices across the country this November. And we are watching very closely to see if women will set new records among governorships this year. The current number of women governors, nine, is the record of the number of women governors who have ever served at one time. And that record was set in 2004. So we're tied for that record We would have broken that record when Kathy Hochul became governor of New York, but of course, Secretary Raimondo left her governorship in Rhode Island to join the Biden administration. So 18 years after the record was set, we're still striving to surpass it. But in November, five of the six governor's races that the Cook Political Report deemed toss-ups feature prominent women candidates. So that includes incumbents Laura Kelly of Kansas and Gretchen Whitmer of Michigan, and then Stacey Abrams, who is a challenger but very well known in Georgia, Carrie Lake and Karen Taylor Robeson are GOP frontrunners in Arizona, and Katie Hobbs is on the Democratic side. And even in such a male-dominated level of elected office, women candidates are influential and significant Here in Massachusetts, Maura Healey is running on the Democratic side with two male GOP challengers, and one of them is bringing in the female governor of South Dakota, Christy Nome, to campaign with him. So that shows the power that women have built and the national profile that women governors have built, especially post-pandemic. Are there any races where you have two female candidates running against each other? And I guess, how does that change the dynamic or does it change the dynamic at all? Absolutely. And that's really another sign of progress. We did research earlier this year looking at how voters perceive races with two women running against each other. 
And we found one sign of progress is that voters are no longer surprised to see women running on either side of the aisle. And that's different than what we saw in 2017, when voters still thought that women running for office was different. But voters are still surprised to see women running against each other. And when we embarked on this research, we had always assumed that when women run against other women, it would cancel out some of the gender bias that women face in politics. So for many, many years, we've always found, going back to the imagination barrier, that voters assume that men are qualified when they run for office. Men can just release their resume and that is taken for granted and accepted. Women have to do much more, especially when seeking executive office, to show that they're up to the job. We often say that women have to show while men can tell. Women have to show they're able to get results. They can't just say that they held a job. They have to talk about what they did in the job. And so when two women run against each other, voters actually demand to know why either woman is qualified rather than assuming both women are qualified. So we were surprised to see that result in our research, but it's definitely helpful to know. And voters also hold women to a different and higher standard when it comes to campaigning. So if a woman is going to go negative on a campaign, voters are still a little bit surprised to see that. And so looking forward to November, the Arizona primary next month will determine the November ballot, but it looks likely that the governor's race will be between one of the two women GOP candidates and Katie Hobbs, who is the current Secretary of State in, in Arizona. And in Iowa, current Governor Kim Reynolds is facing Democrat Deidre DeGere, who could also be the first Black woman governor if she were to win. And Alabama, current Governor Kay Ivey is facing Democrat Yolanda Flowers, who is another candidate that could potentially make history as the country's first Black woman governor. And in Oregon, current Governor Kate Brown is unable to run due to term limits. And so there are currently a number of women in the primary for contention. And Tina Kotek, who is running as a Democrat there, is the current Speaker of the House. And Maura Healy, who's running here in Massachusetts, could either be the first out lesbian woman governor in the country if either of them were to win their election. And there's also potential for a Republican woman to match up against incumbent Gretchen Whitmer in Michigan. So definitely a lot to watch in November. You've got women running on both sides of the political aisle. So what's the balance there? Do you find women are more likely to run for one party or another? And are the perceptions different when you're running in one party as opposed to another? We've definitely seen in recent years more women running on the Republican side for a while. It was definitely more women running on the Democratic side. People still assume that women have certain traits as leaders that lend themselves uh, as benefits when they run for office. So people tend to think generally that women reach across the aisle, that they're more collaborative and that they're better on policy issues like education and healthcare. But Republican women have an advantage because voters think that Republican women are stronger on things like the economy and national security which they tend to think that women are 
week on. So there are definitely advantages that women on either side of the aisle have. And I think that both parties have realized that and are seeing that women can win if they run. You've talked a little bit about the obstacles women face on the campaign trail. But once I guess like they're in that seat, what kinds of things do you see women leaders having to navigate? Well, we know generally that women's appearance is scrutinized a lot more than men, their tone of voice, their hair. And that doesn't go away when they are elected to office. Obviously, in many offices like governorships and mayors, they have been dominated by men for hundreds of years. And people are used to seeing often a white man in a suit. That's the uniform. So when women show up differently in the job, certainly they look different, they dress different. Sometimes people can scrutinize them, sometimes publicly, and hold them to a higher standard. We also know that during a crisis, and we have so many different crises facing our country, our research shows that voters worry that women won't be strong or decisive enough during a crisis. Although sometimes when women are strong and decisive during a crisis, voters punish them and they face a backlash. So there's a real fine line that women are walking all the time. We call it the likability tightrope because voters have to believe that a woman is qualified, but they also have to like her in order to support her. And they will vote for a man they do not like if they believe that he's qualified. So even when women are showing strength and having to make tough decisions, they still can't show up looking too tough or else they'll alienate voters and not be likable. Lastly, overall, what do you think we should take away from this research? If I'm a woman looking to get into politics, what should I know on this front? I think that for anybody listening, what's important is to Be aware of your own internal bias and your friends and your colleagues and your family because everybody has it. As you hear people talking about women in public office or women candidates, if you hear someone say something that is sexist and people still do, feel free to say something like, would you say that same thing if that person were a man or if that person were insert name of another man that is in the race? Because oftentimes the answer is no. And I think for women who want to run, they absolutely should. There's a myth that's been around for a long time where people say women have to be asked so many times to run for office. I don't think that that's true anymore. Women are not wallflowers waiting around for their turn. Women want to solve problems and they want to get in there. And so if someone is interested in getting involved, Start by volunteering on a campaign or getting involved on a ballot initiative and slowly start to meet people and you can do a training program. There are so many in different states and virtually and just see what what it leads to. But definitely don't let facing gender bias deter you from running for office. And I will also note, and our research finds repeatedly that Women of color, of course, face additional bias on the campaign trail in addition to gender bias. And we have many different thematic memos and reports on our website that lay out different topics and voter perception. 
Amanda Hunter is the executive director of the Barbara Lee Family Foundation, a nonpartisan nonprofit studying and supporting women in politics. You can learn more at BarbaraLeeFoundation.org. Amanda, thanks so much for taking the time. No, thank you. It's great to be here. Thank you so much. That's a wrap on this week's 51%. 51% is a national production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. It's produced by me, Jesse King. Our executive producer is Dr. Alan Shartok, and our theme is Lolita by the Albany-based artist Girl Blue. Thanks again to Amanda Hunter for joining us this week and you for tuning in. If you'd like to learn more about our guest or just the show in general, you can find episodes new and old at wamcpodcast.org. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at 51% Radio. Let us know what you think and if you have a story you'd like to share as well. Until next week, thanks again for tuning in. I'm Jesse King for 51%. I was every single girl, I was nobody else, I was so sure of myself I was fifteen and a half, he was a hollow laugh And I lost my cool somewhere along the way At night and down the hallway, I had to learn how to look away I lost my cool